This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, talking with Dr. Anthony Fauci about the government's calling an end to the COVID health emergency and how prepared are we for the next pandemic. We're going to be taking your calls. You can talk to Dr. Fauci. Our number is 844-724-8255, 844-724-8255, or tweet us at SciFry. But first, this week, an FDA advisory board paved the way for the first over-the-counter birth control pill. It was a unanimous decision, 17 to 0, in favor. The FDA must accept the recommendations before the pills are available for sale, which is expected in a, a few months' time. Joining me now to talk more about this and other top science news of the week is my guest, Maggie Kurth, science journalist based in Minneapolis. Welcome back, Maggie. Hi, thanks for having me. Nice to have you. Tell us more, 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 how does it work? Tell us all you know about this pill. (laughs) Yeah, so this is really something, this is a type of pill that's existed for a really long time, uh, since the late 60s or early 70s. It's called a mini pill, which is basically a type of birth control that only has one of the two hormones normally found in standard pills. In this case, progesterone only, no estrogen. And mini pills have been shown to be highly effective, but they're effective in different ways than typical pills. So pills with estrogen suppress ovulation, but that only happens for about half the people who take a mini pill. Instead, mini pills usually work by thickening cervical mucus and and thinning the uterine lining, and that makes it harder for sperm to get to eggs and for fertilized eggs to implant. And what were some of the risks and benefits that panel weighed while making their decision? Yeah, so there are some ways that these are better than the standard birth control pills. In some ways, they aren't. On the downside, to get to that 99% effectiveness that these pills can reach, you have to take the mini pills at not just every day, but the same time every single day. Otherwise, that effectiveness will drop to about 91%. But the risk of blood clots is lower with mini pills, and you can also take them while you're breastfeeding. So the FDA's panel was really kind of bouncing around some of these things. You know, without a doctor's involvement, will people miss important information like the timing thing or the fact that you shouldn't take mini pills if you've had breast cancer? But the people on the committee really ended up focusing in on the fact that this is going to be a lot more effective than any other over-the-counter contraceptive, and the benefits really outweigh the risks. So you'll, you'll just be able to walk into the pharmacy and buy the pill yourself without a prescription. Yeah. If the FDA approves if it, yeah. If they approve it. Interesting. Uh, this next story you brought us is about <laughs> Energizer Bunnies of Spacecraft. And I'm talking about Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. They were launched in 1977, and they're still going, right, in space. Oh, yeah. They're, I mean, NASA's unmanned spacecraft have this history of being really long-lived, but these two are just crazy. I mean, you're probably most familiar with them from the photos that they took of Saturn and the pale blue dot shot of Earth. Right, right. But these craft hit interstellar space in 2012, and they are continuing to send back information about what space is like outside of our solar system. Things like magnetic fields and cosmic rays, they're taking measurements on this all the time. But to keep doing that, NASA's had to figure out how to keep these things alive. They run off of what are essentially nuclear batteries, little Mm. generators that turn Mm -hmm. plutonium-238 into electricity. And that power runs all the instruments on board. 
But over time, NASA's had to turn off some of the working parts to keep others running. So in 2019, they turned off the heaters that were keeping some of the scientific instruments warm. And then in March, uh, on Voyager 2, they turned off a safety mechanism that was meant to protect the system from voltage spikes. Now, the good news with that is it's probably going to be enough to keep everything running on Voyager 2 until 2026 without shutting off any other scientific instruments. Wow. I I love Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 because... Not people, many people don't know they have a special eight track recorder, the high technology of the day. There's an an eight track on it. It's a little industrial design, but that's kind of fun. It's maybe the most famous for that brilliant picture they sent back from Saturn and Jupiter. It's some great stuff. But as you say, they're way, way Mm -hmm. out, way out past the solar system now, right? Yeah, and the hope is that by kind of chopping off one little bit of their functionality at a time, they could maybe limp their way into 50 years of service. Wow, that's that's really amazing. All right, your next story is about an animal that unfortunately is facing an, an extinction. Tell us about that. So, ocelots. They are the cutest amphibians ever devised by nature. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen them. They're kind of squishy-looking, perpetually smiling little creatures. They've got frills around their heads like they're off to a summer festival. Some of them are even pink. Um, hmm. Unfortunately, as you say, they are also extremely endangered. Um, they are native. I know it's the worst. They're so cute. They're native to lakes and marshlands and sewers, actually, around Mexico City. And ocelot populations have fallen rapidly in recent decades. So there was a 1998 survey that found 6,000 per square kilometer. And by 2015, that was down to 36 per square kilometer. Hmm. And so they have special things they can do, like they can regrow their limbs? They can. And as Richard Stone writes in Science, one of the problems with causing them to be you know, going extinct yeah. right now is actually part of what makes them special. So they're adapted specifically to what is now Mexico City, you know, nowhere else in the world. And they're related to these boring old normal tiger salamanders. But at some point about a million years ago, they just stopped going on land as adults, and they hmm. ended up remaining their whole lives in these plentiful, what were once predator-free waters. And so they kept some of those juvenile features, like limb regrowing. Wow. Wow. So is it because that they've run out of their natural habitat that they're in danger now? or? Yeah, yeah. So that habitat has changed drastically around them. You know, from the time the Spanish colonists started draining many of the lakes after they invaded to the 1970s when the Mexican government started stocking these lakes with carp and tilapia, which is a delicious food that unfortunately also eats ocelots. And now their remaining habitat is threatened further by gentrification as some of these canals and lakes get turned into restaurants and soccer fields. And a a lot of them, though, are existing mostly in labs, right, for research. Right. Yeah, they're in labs for research. There's actually a growing pet industry around them. Um, So they're they're not going to die out completely. But their numbers in the wild are really not looking very good right now. Wow, sorry to hear that. Okay, let's move on to another animal that's in short supply in the lab, but not in nature. And I'm talking about monkeys. How did we get into a research monkey shortage? 
Oh, this is so interesting. So there's uh, the National Academies report recently found that two thirds of U.S. scientists are having trouble getting monkeys for their experiments. And the U.S. uses about 70,000 monkeys a year, mostly for research on infectious diseases, neuroscience and aging. Um, But as David Grimm writes in Science, the availability of these monkeys just plummeted after the covid pandemic. Now, a big part of that is because we were getting 60% of our monkeys from China, and they basically cut off that supply at the beginning of COVID. Then we started getting them from Cambodia, but then the dealers in Cambodia got caught in a smuggling scandal where they were basically selling wild-caught monkeys and Mm. claiming they were lab-bred. Then all the major airlines have pretty much stopped agreeing to ship lab animals. Right. And the monkey that's used most frequently was declared endangered. So now we have all of this growing amount of research on things like infectious diseases and neuroscience and aging. And demand is shot up, but supply is way, 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 way down. So that means the price of a monkey has gone way up. The price of a monkey has gone up a lot. Uh, researchers told science that they used to be able to get a monkey anytime they wanted one for $2,000. And that process can now take months and cost upwards of $19,000. 19000 This This next story is some very good news. Uh, for people who hate to eat their veggies, scientists are working to make veggies taste better using gene editing technology. Now, this I have to hear. Well, if you're anything like me, Ira, you probably have memories of Brussels sprouts as a national punchline, like, you know, <laughs> people, the thing you're threatened with as a child. Um, and then it it's kind of crazy when you turn around and see today there this restaurant side dish everywhere. And it turns out that this is not just cultural gaslighting. Brussels sprouts actually did used to taste bad. And that changed in the late 1990s because these breeding programs figured out this bitter-tasting chemical called glucosinolates could be actually removed from the plant's flavor profile by breeding sweeter-tasting Brussels sprouts with Brussels sprouts that also produced a, a lot of sprouts. And so now we have this really popular vegetable that was not really popular before. And Megan Bartles has a cool piece in Scientific American looking at efforts to do the same thing for other veggies, this time using DNA sequencing and CRISPR gene editing. Wow. Our last story uh, this week, the COVID public health emergency officially ended in the U.S. So we're going to be talking a bit about that with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. But I want to talk about a fascinating way researchers are still tracking COVID by monitoring human waste on airplanes. Airplanes. Yes, it's so it's so cool. It's so this is like a an early warning system for new variants basically. You know, there are a few people getting tested in any documentable way, so scientists are turning to toilets to understand what's going on and this new program is testing wastewater from airplanes as they land in San Francisco. But the program is only looking at international flights. Um this is mm. from a story by Betsy Ladejets in Science News. And that's because, put it delicately, people are less likely to poop when they fly domestic. Aha. Uh-huh. I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's more samples on the international flights. And right. the scientists are hoping that they will. this will give them a good idea of what new strains are entering the country. Mm-hmm. And they hope that maybe this could be expanded to track other diseases as well in the future. Great stuff, Maggie. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. 
Thank you. Maggie Kurth, science journalist based in Minneapolis.